You are listening to John Diard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. In this episode, Dr. John talks common deficiencies. Hi, my name is Dr. John Diard, and I'd like to tell you an amazing story about a patient that I recently had that had just an incredible outcome that I thought would be very interesting to share with you. I also want to tell you in this video about how to choose the best vitamin D supplement and which vitamin D supplements you absolutely want to avoid. About eight months ago, a patient came to me complaining of the strangest thing. He was living on the East Coast. He uh, had done some seminars and some work in Colorado and uh, fell in love with it here and wanted to move here. But every time he'd come here to job search or do a seminar, his blood sugar would rise to diabetic level. He would go back to the East Coast. Within a couple of days, his blood sugar levels would normalize. Every time he'd come back out here, blood sugar levels would rise again to diabetic levels. Basically, when he came to Colorado, he had diabetes. And when he back to the East Coast, he didn't. It was something I had never seen before. I, checked his digestion, his lymphatic system, his stress levels. I went through the whole kind of litany of questions that I asked to qualify or find to determine what the underlying imbalances are, how, how moving to Colorado, possibly the altitude stress could somehow impact him in, in this very, very strange way. Altitude really can explain a lot of reasons why people have trouble living in Colorado, but really blood sugar doesn't quite fit. So it was very, very strange. And when someone doesn't fit the profile, they don't fit the patterns of imbalance that I normally see, it doesn't make any sense. The first thing I think of is deficiencies. I wrote a whole series of articles and videos on deficiencies that affect more than half the world's population. We did one on, on vitamin D, we did one on vitamin B12, we did one on iodine. These are all deficiencies that are worldwide problems that, uh, that uh, we at LifeSpot talk a lot about and show you how to deal with that, how to test for that, how to make sure you're not at risk for any of these types of deficiencies. So, so I checked him for his vitamin D levels. His vitamin D levels, we had him do a, uh, a test and his numbers were significantly low, below 20, which is, which is really knocking on the door of getting rickets. He was an African-American corporate executive. He was very busy, perhaps very stressed, although he didn't seem stressed. Um, and uh, the darker your skin, darker pigment skin, have need two to three times as much vitamin D than other folks. So, you know, it just made sense that, that anyone, all of us, should have our vitamin D levels tested, but definitely African-Americans, uh, you know, any, any skin color that is darker needs to be tested because of, the, because of the difficulty it is in the Northern Hemisphere to get adequate vitamin D for anybody. So this was an important thing. We tested it, turned out to be positive. I gave him uh, optimal levels, like 10,000 IUs of vitamin D for three months and 5,000 for two months, and then I uh, hadn't heard a word from him. About a month ago, his, his wife came, came to my office, uh, and she looked at me, and she told me the story, and she said, remember my husband? I said, yeah, and she said, we just moved to Colorado. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, his blood sugar is completely normal. It turned out it was a vitamin D deficiency, and that solved all of our problems. And it was just the most amazing story how something so exotic, so strange, something you would never think of, and he had been to so many practitioners trying to figure this out and really couldn't come up with any type of understanding or logic or solution to this, and it was as simple as a vitamin D deficiency. So please, 
make sure that you get your vitamin D levels tested now at the end of the summer when, this, when the sunlight has accumulated in our fat cells and the vitamin D levels are, are the highest they're going to be all year long. Get them tested now. We have a vitamin D test kit, a little skin prick test. You send it in in the mail. You don't need a doctor's visit. There's really no excuse to, to, to not get that vitamin D levels test. Optimal levels are between 50 and 80 nanograms per milliliter. That's where you want to be the rest of your life. You want to know where you are and you, you don't want to guess any longer. The research is just simply too compelling. And we're talking about 50% less uh, respiratory infections, 17% less flus in the wintertime, seasonal defective disorders, colds, uh, depressions in the wintertime, critically important, chronic disease dramatically cut, heart disease, blood pressure, um, about 50 to 60 percent reduction in almost all cancers. Uh, about 2,000 of our genes are protected by vitamin D. So, so much that we should do from, basically it's the sun. We take this body out of the sun, like any living organism, they wither and they die. And we've been battling chronic disease for the last 100 years because we have slowly but surely taken ourselves away from the sun. We've been told the sun is bad. That was a mistake. We've been lathering with sunscreens to avoid the sun at all costs. That was a mistake. And now we're paying the price. Nobody's saying get sunburned or be, be, be dangerous, dangerously exposed, but you have to make sure you optimize your levels. Best way is with a blood test. Now, how do you choose which vitamin D is the best for you? Well, about 1920s and 30s, vitamin D was first discovered and they synthesized vitamin D from, um, from funguses. And they patented the process, and the pharmaceutical companies own that process. They've been, they've been basically using vitamin D2 as a prescription form of vitamin D for the last 50 years or so or more. And, um, and as a result, vitamin, and that worked great for getting rid of rickets. It raised your numbers up, you know, plenty good to get, keep you from getting osteoporosis or rickets and things like that. But in the last 10 years, the rules have completely changed. The research on vitamin D and how it acts more like a hormone at higher levels versus just a vitamin to protect your bone density at lower levels makes vitamin D2 simply obsolete. There are so many studies in the article associated with this video, I, I cite all the studies that have been done on why we should not use vitamin D2. If you go to your doctor and they check your levels, they may give you a prescription of 50,000 IUs of vitamin D2 uh, uh, um, per week for six weeks, for 16 weeks to optimize your levels. I've had many, many, many patients beyond this very high dose prescription of vitamin D2. I have not seen one optimize your levels uh, between 50 and 80 nanograms per milliliter. I've had patients who have been on that dose for a couple of years and still end up in the low 30s, still in, just insufficient to really make, get the magical benefits that we're looking at uh, from optimal levels of vitamin D. It doesn't uh, absorb nearly as well. Vitamin D2 uh, it has toxicity issues at higher dosages, much more than vitamin D3. Vitamin D2 is a plant-based vitamin D. It has, it's for invertebrates, it's for plants. It never was in the human body until we put it there uh, 50, 70 years ago. And vitamin D3, on the other hand, is from the sun. And this is the human source of vitamin D. And at higher levels, it stops acting like a vitamin. It starts acting like a hormone. And it has an incredible effectiveness as a hormone in the body. In fact, it's the most powerful and potent hormone, steroid hormone that we have in our body. So it's really important to make sure we reap those benefits from the point of view of protection, 
from, from toxic exposure that we're in, that we're in immune building support. A recent study that I, that I talked about in my last newsletter about how to boost your immunity now in the wintertime, I talked about the, the most amazing study I've seen in a long time and how our killer T cells, which are the, the, really the, 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 the big guns of our immune system, simply lie dormant unless they have an appropriate amount of vitamin D in their, in their system before they engage in battle and boost our immunity. Our whole immune system responds based on adequate levels of the sun. So we have been told uh, the wrong thing about the sun. Unfortunately, many of us are still on vitamin D2. That really needs to change. Get vitamin D3, optimize your levels, get them tested. The, the research is, is conclusive. The pharmaceutical companies, which now their patent is over, they're, they're in the process of switching to vitamin D3. And that's just something that hasn't happened quite yet. And as a result, that's also why the medical doctors haven't really been telling all their patients about this because they get a lot of their information from their pharmaceutical reps who just really aren't in the business of telling anybody about vitamin D because they don't have the appropriate supplement. So, so we have to uh, read the research and become educated and realize that this is something that is very, very important. It is the sun and we've lost our connection with it. And it's the one vitamin, the one vitamin, which is really not a vitamin at all, is more of a hormone that keeps us alive, keeps our immune system strong, protects us from cancers, autoimmune conditions, diabetes, heart disease, um, like no other vitamin or hormone um, on the planet. It is the sun. It keeps us alive. It's what got us here. So please don't miss the opportunity this winter to optimize your levels and stay healthy all winter long. Please check out my website at lifespot.com for more information about the, the home vitamin D test kit, more articles about how, how vitamin D can help you, and, uh, and please read the article associated with this video as well. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. John Deyard. Hi, my name is Dr. John Duyard, and I want to talk to you today about protein deficiency. I see an inordinate amount of protein deficient patients in my practice. Yeah, I do see lots of vegetarians, but vegetarians are not the only group at risk for protein deficiency. Many folks have stopped eating red meat 20, 30 years ago. They eat just a little bit of chicken and fish, and they may also be at risk for protein deficiency. And I want to talk to you today about how to self-assess whether or not you are protein deficient and some very interesting ways to uh, resolve your issue of protein deficiency. I want to also say that I'm a big believer in a vegetarian diet. I think it's one of the healthiest diets that we can eat. It is, however, a very difficult diet to stay on. Most folks uh, don't cook enough food and don't cook enough in their life to be healthy vegetarians. And I do see lots of unhealthy vegetarians. You know, in India and Asia, they typically have someone who's designated to cook around the clock. They start at breakfast, they cook lunch, they cook supper. Someone cooks and shops for food pretty much all day. We have you know, super moms who are doing so many different things and they come and they try to cook. And, and as a vegetarian, we run the risk of becoming protein deficient without being aware of it. So if you're going to be a vegetarian, be aware and listen to this video and let, read the article associated with this video where I go into the detail of how to assess yourself. First thing that happens when you become protein deficient is your blood sugar can become unstable, which means you can start to become moody. You can begin to crave sugars, candies, sweets. If you're someone 
who doesn't feel satisfied without pastas and breads and a big heavy meal, or has jelly beans in your glove compartment, or a stash of candy somewhere in your office, and, and you crave chocolate or, or, or uh, coffee or Starbucks or some type of stimulant to get yourself energy, this is an indicator of blood sugar instability, and if you're a vegetarian or don't eat a lot of protein, that may be something you need to look into. In addition to having your mood be a little unstable and being blood sugar unstable, uh, craving sugars and sweets, the protein around our joints is stored in a fluid called the synovial fluid. So every joint has a sac around it that's filled with protein called the synovial fluid. When you exercise real hard, that fluid pumps in through the lymphatic system into the muscles and feeds and repairs those muscles with protein. That's why we always take protein after we work out to repair the damage from the muscular activity. When you're protein deficient, the first protein that go, the, when the first protein that we, that we lose is the protein in and around our joints. And we can begin to get stiff and achy joints. So if you have stiff, achy joints and you're craving lots of sugar and your mood is a little unstable and you're a vegetarian or don't eat a lot of meat, these are risk factors beginning to add up. In the winter time, as we go into the winter, the body, according to Ayurveda, stores proteins and fats. So our needs for proteins and fats are greater in the winter. So squirrels, for example, eat nuts to store their protein and fat reserves in the winter, so to insulate themselves. We have those same needs. So in the winter time, if your body doesn't have enough protein, it'll suck the protein from the synovial fluid and push it into uh, it'll push it into the deep tissues, leaving your joints achy and more stiff. So wintertime achy and stiff joints, possible indicator of protein deficiency. In the winter, if you start craving more, blood sugar starts to go up and down more, you're moody more. These are all factors you may want to look at as possible risk factors for protein deficiency. So to fix this imbalance, in Ayurvedic medicine, which is a vegetarian system of medicine, they actually use red meat to restore as a medicine to repair the debt of the lack of protein. In Ayurveda, they suggest using four ounces of red meat every day at your main meal at lunchtime for two weeks. I have prescribed this for many, many years, and when it works, when I actually prescribe it for someone I think is protein deficient, and they actually do it, I've seen nothing less than miracles. So if you're wondering if you're protein deficient, try eating red meat, buffalo, or beef every day four ounces for two weeks, and build those reserves. Why red meat? It's the most acidic. The most acidic the protein, the more it penetrates. Acid foods penetrate, alkaline foods cleanse. So when you take a lot of alkaline proteins like, like nuts and seeds, they're good, but they don't have the acidity as meat to penetrate and drive the protein deep into the tissue. So it was traditionally used as medicine to restore a protein deficiency using red meat. You can increase the red meat in your diet you can, or, or the protein in your diet. Uh, you can go to the grocery list in the, the library on my website at lifespa.com and look at the winter grocery list. All the foods in the winter tend to be higher in fat and higher in protein. Eat more of those foods. Get your protein reserves up in the winter. In addition to that, um, you can have protein shakes, whey, pea, hemp, or rice protein shakes. Very, very good way of supplementing your proteins. And if you think you're protein deficient, have one of those shakes with every meal, three meals a day. Don't just have one protein shake and think you're done. And don't have it as a meal. Have it, uh, have it with three meals a day. 
So there you have it, some very simple techniques. There's lots more in the article associated with this video. Please go to my website at lifespa.com for more information. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. John Duyard. Hi, I'm Dr. John Duyard, and I want to talk to you today about calcium supplementation. The British Medical Journal did a recent meta-analysis of over 8,000 people and found that people who take 500 milligrams of calcium are at risk of heart attacks by 30%. It's a lot. Why and how could that be? We've all been told calcium supplement is really good for you. Well, the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition has told us clearly in a 2007 study that foods are the best sources of calcium. Well, we just kind of sort of have always known that. And uh, people in China, for example, in the China study, they found out that they eat only 200 milligrams of calcium per day, and as they age, they have the best bone density. Their bones get stronger as they age. Ours get weaker. Why is that? How could that be? Well, you know, one of the things is that we know in that same study, in the clinical nutrition study, that when you add a good quality calcium supplement to the foods, then you have the best and the strongest bone density. So why is that? Well, perhaps that's because our minerals are depleted in the soil, and we don't get the minerals and the calcium out of the soil the way we should. Now in nature, there isn't a calcium plant. There's, there's, those plants pull all the minerals out of the ground, and with fulvic and humic acids, they convert them into a bioavailable source form usually attaching them with amino acids or glycolonutrients to make them bioavailable. So when the cow or the elephant or the moose eats these, these plants, they get tons of minerals and tons of calcium, way more than they would ever need. And this is the first time in the history of the world, in the West, that we've actually seen bone density issues. Now, why is that? Well, partially it's because we're supplementing ourselves with calcium that doesn't absorb. The number one source of calcium that doesn't absorb are the, the rocks, the shells, the, the calcium carbonates. They don't absorb well. And uh, they're oyster shells and, and egg shells and, and, and uh, limestone. So we want to avoid bone meal and these types of calcium. The, the calcium in your fortified milk and fortified orange juice are typically calcium carbonate. Make sure it's not that, because if it is that, then you're probably not going to absorb it. And that is the kind of calcium linked to the, to the increased heart attacks by 30%. And we don't want that. So what kind of calcium do we want to take? What is the good calcium? When they combine the good calcium with good foods, bone densities were the best, in fact. So the best calcium is when you have an array of minerals together, not a calcium supplement with just magnesium, but calcium with an array of minerals that's attached or bound to a, a carrier like an amino acid. This is how nature did it, and it works perfectly. Also, the other factors with making sure calcium absorbs is vitamin D. We have epidemic deficiencies of vitamin D in this country. Vitamin D carries the calcium out of your gut into your cells and makes it bioavailable. You don't have enough vitamin D, which we don't as a culture, that's another factor. So please read the articles associated with the video uh, on vitamin D. So make sure you optimize your vitamin D levels. Definitely make sure that's happening in the winter. And also in the article with this video, there's a list of all the foods that are rich in calcium and also rich in the other minerals. And make sure you're getting a good source of natural calcium. Because if you're going to convert yourself from a calcium supplement to a food-based source of calcium, make sure you know where to get your calcium and your minerals from. And that list is in the article associated with this video. 
Now, a Dutch researcher did a research project and found that one of the reasons why we might have bone density issues as we age is because when you take lots that are caused by calcium supplementation, is that when you take lots of calcium, the body feels kind of like, oh my gosh, I gotta get rid of this, do something with this calcium. And what it does with that calcium is it stimulates the increased laying down of new bone. But for that to happen, it has to reabsorb some of the old bone so it can take the calcium and lay down new bone. And that's done with these osteoblasts. These osteoblasts lay down the new bone. Well, 70% of those osteoblasts die with each one of those bone-making cycles. So we have a, a limited number of those cycles that we can actually have in our lifetime. So as we age, those cycles start to slow down and we start to run out of these osteoblasts. So as a result, now we have a situation where we're still taking the calcium supplementation. I can't make the osteoblasts anymore. I don't have, the cycles are slowing down. So my bones become less dense. And that's why in the beginning when you first take calcium, your bones become really dense because you increase the cycle of laying down new bone. Of course you're gonna feel good. And the studies say calcium is the greatest thing. You know what? And it was, except for the fact that when these cycles slow down, we run the risk of osteoporosis as we age. That doesn't happen when you take dietary, botanical, natural sources of calcium. Interesting. But now the problems exist. What do you do with this calcium? Now that we're still taking calcium supplements like crazy, trying to lay down more bone, right, as we age? and the body can't lay it down, it doesn't have the osteoblast cycles intact the way it once did, so the body has to deposit this calcium in your arteries, in your heart, in your joints, in your brain. There's a thing called brain gravel, deposits in your joints, in your brain. Uh, calcium deposits in your brain. So we've kind of created a little bit of a problem with calcium. We, calcium supplementation has actually caused more problems than it's actually solved. So go to the article in this video, read about the calcium, the food sources of calcium, understand about how vitamin D is so critically important in this process, and understand, what, give, I give you some tips about some calcium, calcium supplementation and mineral supplements that actually do work, and the combination of the food and a good calcium supplement can be, at least according to the latest research, is the best way to go. Thanks for listening, I'm Dr. John Duyart. Hi, my name is Dr. John Duyard, and I want to talk to you today about vitamin B12. Now, vitamin B12 is potentially a deficiency that affects more than half the world's population. Why is that? It's because lots of folks have less than optimal digestion. Now, all the other B vitamins are water-soluble. They digest very easily, no problem. B12 has its own unique way of being digested, absorbed, and assimilated, and stored in your liver and it requires really good digestion. Mostly it requires a really strong stomach acid. In your stomach, there's a protein that's manufactured called the intrinsic factor, and it's only made if the stomach is producing a very strong acid. If the stomach is not producing a very strong acid, you won't make the intrinsic factor, you will not hook on, that will not hook on to the vitamin B12, you will not absorb it, you can have as much B12 in your diet as you want, swallow as many pills as you want, it will not be utilized. So, 
How do you know if you have good digestion? Well, wheat, the gluten, is a protein, requires a good, strong stomach acid. Casein and dairy requires a good, strong stomach acid. Nuts and soy, lots of the hard-to-digest proteins are broken down in your stomach. So if you have trouble with those, then that's a good indicator, ooh, my digestive fire may not be as good as it should be, and I might slowly be, be depleting my reserves of B12 in my liver, which takes about five years to deplete. So that's an issue. So folks who get older, who become weaker in their digestion, and, I don't, and even though the studies show that as you get older, digestion gets weaker, I don't believe it. I really believe that if you work on your digestion, that you can have a digestion as you get older, you know, the same as someone who's young and healthy. I just don't believe we have to throw in that towel. However, people do as we get older, we get run down and our digestion does get weaker. So that's a factor. So they say, you know, people who get older are more prone to vitamin B12 deficiency. People who are on medication usually affects the quality of the digestion, affects the stomach acid. That can be a factor associated with a vitamin B12 deficiency. Being a vegetarian um, because you don't have adequate B12 in your diet is almost maybe the most classic historical way folks get B12 deficient. They just don't get enough B12 in their diet. And that's important as well to make sure you're getting optimal amounts of B12. Now, when B12 is low in the diet, um, you know, one study showed that the brain can literally shrink. And the good news was is that, that as you get the B12 back in your diet and you get support digestive strength and turn the fires back on, make the intrinsic factor so it can do its job, the brain starts to recover. Now, when the B12 hooks onto that intrinsic factor and it's carried all the way through your intestinal tract, it doesn't leave your intestine until the very end of your small intestine where it goes to your liver to be stored. So along the way, what it's doing, it's precursing many of your hormones like melatonin for sleep, many of your, your neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin for mood stability. So if there was ever a vitamin that was good for your heart and good for your brain, then vitamin B12 is it. And because it's difficult to digest, and folks tend to get weaker digestive stomach fires, it's a very, very common deficiency. So years ago, you'd get injections of B12, and now today, they have these very, very efficient sublingual versions of vitamin B12 that absorb through the sublingual pathways directly into your blood. I'm a big fan of those because when you take those and you feel better right away, more energy, better mood, then all of a sudden you know two things, right? You know, wow, I was low in B12, and number two, I was, um, my digestion is probably weak and I need to work on that as well and not just be dependent on taking a supplement for the rest of your life. You know, vitamin B12, the vitamin B12 tests are are considered suspicious. They're less than 100% accurate. So, you know, now the vitamin B12 test is really not accurate unless you have a, a methylmalonic acid test, a homocysteine test. Homocysteine is a marker for inflammation in the body. So we need all of those together to sort of get, an, you know, a sense of whether the B12 uh, is actually normal. The study at Tufts University showed that people who had normal levels of vitamin B12, when they took B12, felt a whole lot better. So they, they figured that something must be inaccurate with that test. So the book is still out with regard to getting an accurate reading of vitamin B12. You know, one of the things you want to do is say, hey, how am I digesting those hard to digest foods? Am I doing really well at those? 
then you're probably okay. Does my diet have adequate B12 in it? Then you're probably okay. If my digestion has become weaker or I became a vegetarian for a while, then you might be thinking about you know, vitamin B12 you know, um, concerns. Issues like that, that are related to vitamin B12, you know, lack of mental clarity, uh, tiredness, exhaustion, fatigue, and even some strange neurological symptoms like burning tongue and burning soles of your feet oftentimes can be associated with uh, a lack of B12 in the blood as well. So uh, please take a look at the article associated with this video. And thanks for listening. I'm Dr. John Bernard. Hi, my name is Dr. John Duyard, and today I want to share with you some of the most important reasons as to why we should all make sure we're getting enough iodine in our diet. Now, a few years back, a patient came to me. I was treating her for thyroid issues and weight gain concerns, and I've been treating her for some time, and out of the blue, all of a sudden, her thyroid number just became way out of balance, unexplainable, and I couldn't understand what could have caused this. So I called a friend of mine, a PhD researcher, thyroid expert, Ryan Drum, and I put him on speakerphone with my patient right here, and I said, Ryan, here's the situation. I explained what happened to her thyroid numbers, and he asked, has she bought a new car or any new furniture recently? And both of us dropped our jaws because she had just been telling me that she had just bought new furniture, and the outgassing was so bad she couldn't close her windows. She had just recently bought a new car, and she was also complaining that that was outgassing too, and she felt surrounded by these toxins. And that, Ryan said, is what probably caused her thyroid numbers to go so far out of whack so quickly. He said that the thyroid is the most sensitive gland to a toxic environment, particularly environmental pollutants, particularly halogens like fluoride, chloride, and bromide. Now, bromide is a flame retardant used in many things uh, that we find in outgassing cars and outgassing carpets and outgassing furniture. And that could completely take out your thyroid. Those bromides chemicals actually compete for the iodine receptors, as does fluoride receptors, which is in the nonstick pans. It's in uh, all the water you drink. It's in toothpaste. They also chlorides we know are in swimming pools. They're, you know, insidiously in our environment, and they compete for the iodine receptors. Now, in one study, after a group of people took 50 milligrams of iodine, the day after the increased excretion through the urine of of fluoride was 78%, you know, compared to normal. The increased excretion of bromide was 50% in the urine after just one dose of iodine. That was a lot of iodine, 50 milligrams. But we now know, and studies confirm, and I've written a lot about this, that iodine is a natural detoxifier and flushing agent for, you know, these toxic halogens. It's very, very important. Problem is that we have an iodine deficiency epidemic. The World Health Organization says 72% of the world's population is deficient in iodine. They've also found that in the last 30 years, we have 50% less iodine in our, in our blood than we did 30 years ago. What happened is we, we stopped eating uh, iodized salt, uh, sea salt and natural salts have become in fashion. We've been told that salt's bad for us, so we stopped eating salt. The, the uh, dairy industry and the meat industry used to use iodine to clean the equipment, so there was a lot of kind of residue in the dairy and in the meat that we would eat that's gone. Uh, in 1960, they started using iodine as a dough conditioner to condition the dough. Uh, and, and in fact, one slice of bread gave people the RDA for iodine. So we had that plus the salt. We already had plenty of iodine. But that was taken out in 1980 and replaced by 
bromide. Bromide is that halogen we talked about that competes with the iodine receptor. So not only do we actually take the iodine out of the bread, we put in as another dough conditioner something that literally blocks our ability to utilize the iodine. Not to mention that our soils are somewhat deficient. So we have a, a major issue with not enough iodine to protect ourselves from a toxic world. And that is the purpose of this thyroid iodine series that I've written, a whole bunch, four articles uh, on how important iodine is, understanding thyroid, thyroid function, and how to bring your body back into balance with reference to iodine and thyroid function. So please go to my website at lifespot.com and, and really learn a little bit about this thyroid and how important the thyroid gland is and how important iodine is for supporting optimal thyroid health. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. John Duyard. Hi, my name is Dr. John Duyard, and I want to talk to you today about the importance of omega-3 fatty acids. Omega-3 fatty acids come in vegetable oils and in fish oils. And the vegetable oils like flaxseed make an omega-3 fatty acid called ALA, alpha linoleic acid. And that has to be converted into the more potent DHA and EPA fatty acids that you see or find in Arctic fish oils. It's a hard conversion for the body to make, so clearly the studies have shown that the fish oils are the most potent. Studies have shown that when you take fish oils, particularly the EPA, high concentrations of the EPA and DHAs, we actually increase brain size, in particularly and brain volume, particularly in the area of the brain's happiness centers. Outperforms Prozac outperforms antidepressants. This phenomenal support for the brain function prevents Alzheimer's. Um, it prevents uh, from attention deficit disorders. It increases and stabilizes mood. The, the omega-3 fatty acids make up about 8% of our brain density, our brain size. So they're huge and very, very important for mood stability and brain function. The, the, the interesting thing about these oils is they also support heart health. They protect you from heart disease, lower cholesterol, lower triglycerides, protect us from the inflammatory process. They protect our joints and support good joint health. I mean, the studies are phenomenal, and I cite them in the article associated with this video. But what I think is fascinating is why. Why do we have such a deficiency in these fish oils in our culture today? And I believe that's because we don't metabolize fat well as a culture. We have high cholesterol. We don't metabolize our fat. We have an overweight society, not metabolizing our fat. We need to eat little meals all day long because we don't metabolize fat, which is a stable, long, slow-burning fuel. We're having to eat because we are under so much stress. We have stored the fat and we crave sugar, which we need to replenish constantly throughout the day. So we have to convince the body that the war is over, convince the body that it's safe to burn the fat. Well, what happens when we're under stress is the stress impacts the gut and it irritates and inflames your intestinal wall. So you can't absorb the fats. You can't detoxify the fat-soluble chemicals as well as we once did. So we get bloated, we gain weight around our belly and our hips and cellulite. All these are because we don't have good digestive function. Well, here is the magic thing. At LifeSpa, we have sourced a naturally uh, a natural enteric coated high concentrated purified fish oil supplement that delivers the high quality EPA and DHA directly 
into the intestinal villi where they can be healed. There are studies that show that these enterocoded products actually heal the intestinal villi. That is so critically important to be able to do that so we can absorb the nutrition that we need to become, so we can get rid of the waste and the toxins that are toxic for our body. That's, that's all based on good quality intestinal villi. Plus, if you can deliver the EPA and DHA directly and bypass the breaking down of the upper digestive system and deliver it to the villi, it can be also delivered into your bloodstream directly as high potent omega-3 fatty acids where it will support heart health, where it will protect you from cholesterol and inflammation and give your brain more blood, more blood volume, increase the size and actually support mood in an incredible way. So these are phenomenal things. Plus, the fish oil taste people get when they take fish oils, that's completely eradicated when you have a naturally enteric coated supplement. And that's hard to find. Most of the enteric coated products either don't work or they're extremely toxic. So this is an extremely rare find. Now, the other piece, of the very important piece of the puzzle with fish oils is the mercury toxicity that we're all very, very, and rightfully so, concerned about. And this is a molecularly distilled, purified product, guaranteed purity, guaranteed stability. It's a phenomenally stable product. You don't have to worry about that. These products are tested for mercury and they're free of heavy metals. So that's really important. Other concerns, people think, well, krill oil is supposedly better, supposedly more stable. You know, I've done a lot of research on krill and I have studies that I cite in the article associated with this video. I have not been convinced that they're actually more stable than a good quality Arctic oil, particularly the one that we carry at Life Spa called the Mega Omega. Please read the article associated with this video. I'll go to my website at lifespa.com for more information. And um, please tune into these health reports where I give you, I really consider vital information every couple of weeks about how to take care of your health. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. John Biard. Hi, my name is Dr. John Biard, and I want to talk to you today about the difference between vitamin and mineral supplements. It's always interested me why we produce vitamin and mineral supplements always together. Now we've heard for years now that our soils are depleted in minerals, so that makes sense. In fact, in 1936, the Department of Agriculture wrote the first report stating that 99% of Americans are deficient in minerals. Another report from 1940 to 1991 showed that the soils have become more and more deficient in minerals by 76%. So there's no question we need to do something about the lack of minerals in our foods and in our soils. But do we have vitamin deficiencies in our foods? I've never read any reports say that the foods are deficient in vitamins. Now it's clear that we might not get enough vitamin C from citrus fruits in the winter. We definitely don't get enough vitamin D from the sun in the winter. We might have difficulty digesting B12. Most of us have digestive issues, which I discuss a lot in our videos and newsletters, how we can strengthen digestion. But those are issues that are easily fixed. But for the most part, the foods are not deficient in the vitamins. It's the minerals that we have to be aware of and focus in on. So I'm not a big fan of just globally giving everyone a vitamin and a mineral supplement. I would rather see us get our vitamins from our foods, 
whole foods, balanced meals, mostly vegetables, 50% of the food, the plate being vegetable, a quarter protein, a quarter good healthy starches, having balanced meals versus little snacks or little meals that aren't complete or balanced along the way. That's the best way to make sure you get your vitamins and most of your minerals supported. That being said, we still have mineral issues in our soil. Linus Pauling, the great leader of the vitamin C um, movement, basically said that every sickness can be related to a mineral deficiency. Thousands and thousands of processes are involved in minerals. That's what makes the vitamins work. So you get the vitamins from your food, but you gotta deliver the minerals. Now, the problem with minerals is that most companies don't actually publish the, the rate of which their minerals absorb. It's scary when you look into that research, which I've done, and you have some companies, you know, absorbing at 10, 5, 10, 15% of those minerals are being absorbed. If you get a company that actually publishes their mineral absorption rates, that's actually quite rare. 20% is very, very high. But along the way, I've discovered uh, one company called Albion that actually creates what's called mineral amino chelates. So in your body, when you eat a mineral, you break, chew up some vegetables, the minerals attach to a protein, to an amino acid. Of course, the amino acids require good digestion in your stomach to have the proteins be broken down into amino acids. And then they hook onto the mineral and they carry it on their back and throw the intestinal wall into your bloodstream and now they can deliver the minerals. So this company did what's called a, a mineral amino chelate. So they actually basically hooked the minerals to the amino acids and help them be absorbed at a, literally a whopping 32%. The most, the most I've seen from any other company is 25%. And this is the only company that I've actually seen actually publish their mineral absorption rates because they're so incredibly high. So think about always getting a, a mineral amino chelate. It'll say it right on the back of the label of your minerals. Uh, you can go to my website and read about our essential minerals, which are mineral chelates, and you can read about the research on those essential minerals and how they work. So please consider a mineral supplement, baseline support, not a lot of minerals, but just baseline support, a good healthy diet, for your vitamins, and if you need a little more vitamin C in the winter, definitely vitamin D or possibly B12. Those are the ones you might have to watch out for. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. John Diard. Hi, my name is Dr. John Diard, and I'm gonna to talk to you today about the importance of fat and fiber in your diet. You know, I'm fascinated by the comparison of ancient humans versus modern humans with regard to their diet. And what's surprising was that the amount of proteins and carbohydrates ancient humans got about the same as what we get today. And that's really amazing because we're constantly fighting over how many proteins and how many carbs we get. That's the war, the diet wars we fight today is proteins and carbohydrates. What jumped off the page was that ancient humans got about, in some studies, 75% of their diet as fat. Now we've been told for 30 years that fat should be 10, 20%. Only recently we're starting to think that good fats are healthy again. Hunter-gatherers got about 100 grams of fiber per day. Modern humans get 20 to 25 if they're lucky. So why did hunter-gatherers get five times as much fiber as we did? Now many of us think fiber's main role, at least in our pre-diabetic era, is to block the absorption of sugar into the bloodstream. 
Well, that doesn't make any sense because hunter-gatherers didn't really get any sugar. The sweetest fruit they had was about as sweet as a carrot. Their amount of sugar they got was about 2% of the diet, and we get about 30% of our diet in some studies in sugar and in sweets. So it wasn't for the sugar. So why did they get so much fiber? What did that do? Well, one thing that it does is the fiber as many of us know, it's a scrub for the intestinal tract and it cleans out the intestinal wall, which is great. Creates great bulk for the intestinal wall. Good things for our, the health of our gut. It also feeds the bugs, the microbiology in the intestinal tract. There's two things that actually feed the intestinal microbiology and that's fat and fiber. The two things that we don't even come close to in comparison to ancient humans. Does that make any sense? Now, what fiber does, maybe the most important thing it does, is what fiber does, it attaches to bile and takes bile to the toilet. Now what's bile? Bile is a Pac-Man in your liver, Pac-Manning toxic chemicals, cholesterol, drugs, any toxic fat soluble, pesticide, preservative, parasite. It's Pac-Manning all that yucky stuff. Then you eat some fat, whoa, all that fat's now in your small intestine. And then in the small intestine, if there's enough fiber, the fiber will attach to that bile and take it to the toilet. Now here's the bad news. Most of us don't get anywhere near the fiber we should get. And up to 94% of that toxic bile with all the yuck in tow gets reabsorbed back to your liver. And your liver's going like, are you kidding me? And the liver, way too busy, puts the, that, those toxins back into circulation. Toxic cholesterols, oxidized cholesterols are now circulating through your arteries, predisposing you to arterial health issues and many other issues, dumping it into your fat cells, even into your brain. This is a problem. And here's the worst part. That bile, if you don't have enough fiber, that bile can get recirculated back to the liver up to 17 times before it's finally flushed out of your system. So it's like washing your dishes in the same water for 17 days in a row before you get new water. That's how important fiber is. So fiber is a critically important nutrient that we should have in our diet and you have to make it a priority. So please, go to the article where I talk about this in detail. I give you some strategies how to get at least 50 grams of fiber in your diet. Foods like beans are really important. All kinds of beans. You've got to become a bean connoisseur if you're going to get good fiber in your diet. There's just no way around it. Good vegetables, asparagus, Brussels sprouts, fantastic good fiber. Apples, good fiber. Some of the grains like barley, also good fiber. You can go, on my, on, you go to the article and link to a website that shows you all the the, the amounts of fiber for all the foods. And I, I, I ask you to go through your regular diet and sort of calculate out and see just how much fiber you're getting per day and see if you're getting anywhere near the 100 grams of fiber that the healthy, disease-free hunter-gatherers did. And surprisingly, and I was surprised about this, they actually, if they didn't get eaten by a lion, they actually lived quite a long life. So there's some takeaway from looking back and saying, what are we genetically wired to do? Definitely not to eat sugar, definitely to get more fiber, and, and definitely to talk about how we can keep that bile really active so it's not recycled 17 times. And that's the topic of part two of this discussion where I talk about the importance of fat. 
So please don't miss that video next week where I talk about the importance of fat, the other missing piece of our dietary puzzle when we look back and get insight from ancient humans. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. John Duyard. Hi, my name is Dr. John Duyard, and I want to talk to you today about the difference between soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. Now, we all know we should eat a high-fiber diet. Studies show that by eating a high-fiber diet, we reduce our risk of cardiovascular disease by a whopping 40%. Problem is, is that most Americans eat about half the amount of fiber they should eat. The other problem is, is that we don't really know which kind of fiber is best. We have uh, soluble fibers, which actually break down in water and become kind of gooey, like oatmeal or psyllium or those kinds of things that actually dissolve in water, therefore they're soluble. And we have insoluble fibers, which are not soluble. That's like vegetables and celery and leafy greens. They don't actually break down. The fiber, the cellulose in those vegetables don't really have a nutritional value. The soluble fibers don't have nutritional value either. They actually do different things. The soluble fibers tend to kind of coat and gel up the intestinal wall, and they protect it from absorbing sugars too fast, so they can be really good for lowering blood sugar. They actually hook on to, to the bile, which is carrying yucky, toxic cholesterol all the way into the toilet. So those soluble fibers will hook on to that, to that bile and cholesterol and capture it. And then the insoluble fibers, the, the, the vegetables and the greens and the cellulose, will escort that all the way out into the toilet and get it out of our body. Also, um, the soluble fibers have been, been linked to reduction in cardiovascular disease. That's why it says on the, on the label of Cheerios, it's a heart-healthy breakfast because of the oats, which are naturally occurring soluble fibers. So we have these soluble fibers which seem to be really good for heart disease and really good for diabetes and good for cholesterol. And in fact, what's happening is a lot of folks are saying, well, if you have heart disease, eat more soluble fiber. If you have more high cholesterol, eat more soluble fiber. And we're starting to, to diagnose and, 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 and prescribe certain types of fibers for certain types of conditions. Now there's insoluble fibers that are really good for kind of bulking agents, all the extra vegetables and all the greens, the roughage that clean out and sweep your intestinal tract. They're alkaline and they maintain the pH of your intestinal wall so bad bacteria don't proliferate. That doesn't allow, it actually is shown to be preventative for colon cancer. It's phenomenally important for constipation so you don't get constipated. It removes toxins out of the gut. If you didn't have the greens and the insoluble fibers, then even though the, the soluble fibers will attach onto the yucky cholesterol and toxins coming out of your liver, they're not going to go anywhere unless you have the good green insoluble fibers to get rid of them. So those fibers uh, will just stay there. And if they don't get out of your body, up to 94% of those toxins can reabsorb back into your liver, go right into your blood, and cause damage to your arteries. So, so it really, what we really need is we need, we need both, actually. And most foods, thank God, have both. Uh, there are certain foods in nature that are emphasizing one or the other. Like soluble fibers are found in lots of grains and barley and nuts and seeds and beans and peas, a little bit in some fruits and vegetables. So they're found in some of anything that turns gooey when you cook it is going to have some soluble fibers in it. The insoluble fibers are really, like I said, the cellulose and vegetables, the skins of fruits. Uh, wheat bran is also a great source of it and lots of whole grains have natural uh, insoluble fibers as well. So, what do we do about it? Well, I'm not a big fan of saying, well, if you have this condition, take more of this kind of fiber or that kind of fiber, boy, that gets real complicated. What I would suggest is that we go back to kind of our Ayurvedic wisdom 
which says that, you know, in the certain times of the year, certain fibers are needed more than others. Now, every food mostly has a natural blend of the two, but nature tends to emphasize those fibers. In the winter, when it's cold and it's dry, we harvest the nuts and the seeds and the grains and the things that sort of become more gooey and the oats. So the soluble fibers are harvested more abundantly in the wintertime when we want to antidote the dryness and the coldness of winter. Imagine coating your gut with this nice lubricating gel. That's what soluble fiber does. It actually helps to hook onto some of these toxins and it protects the gut wall. So these soluble fibers are more abundant during the winter months and they help to, uh, they help to pull toxins, but they also help more importantly to uh, protect and insulate the gut from the tendency to be more dry. Makes perfect sense, right? In the winter, you're cold and dry. You want these warm, uh, oily, kind of unctuous, gel-like substances to coat the intestinal wall. In addition, because your intestinal wall is where you absorb everything, all your nutrition, if that's dried out, it's just not gonna work as good. It's also where our immune system is pretty much housed, 80% is right there. And if it's dried out and irritated and inflamed, it's not gonna function well at all. So this is a natural way of protecting our immune system because 80% of the immune system is right there in the gut. Now in the summer, the rules change. In the summertime, we have uh, fruits and vegetables and that's when you're eating abundance, abundant amounts of fruits and vegetables and those are insoluble. Lots and lots of roughage. What's interesting, that the digestive fire, and we've talked about this in the past, becomes weaker in the summer. The digestive fire kind of dials down because we don't want to overheat. Historically, anthropologically speaking, if we were overheated, we wouldn't survive. So nature has all these checks and balances to make sure that this human body did not overheat, particularly when, when it was very hot outside. In the summer, the digestive fire dials down. Good news, the foods that we harvest are cooked on the vine. All summer long, the foods are cooked on the vine. So when we eat them, they're already pre-cooked for us. We don't need to cook them inside of ourselves. They're cooked by nature outside. How good is that? But also what happens is we also still accumulate a lot of heat. And from the Ayurvedic perspective, when you have a lot of insoluble fiber, fruits and vegetables, it purgates. It helps you move your bowels quicker. That's why we use it to help prevent against constipation. It flushes your system. And that's the way, Ayurvedically speaking, we get rid of heat in the body by purgating, keeping the body moving the waste out. Also, when the digestion becomes weak, the elimination can also slow down in the summertime. So these insoluble fibers help to move toxins out of the intestinal wall and they move, um, they move a lot of the bulk through the intestinal wall a lot faster. So during a weak digestive system where you may tend towards a sluggish bowel function or a limitative function, then these insoluble fibers will flush the system attached to the soluble fibers and escort them out of the out of the body as well, taking the toxins with them, and also scrub the intestinal wall and make sure that that alkaline, insoluble fruits and veggies, cellulose, can actually maintain an environment of, of uh, pH that actually allows the good bacteria to flourish. So, you know, bottom line here is that, yes, we should have both soluble and insoluble fibers. Nature is always emphasizing based on the season. So this is what I wrote my book, The Three Season Diet About. Please. 
uh, go to the article associated with this video and I actually give you uh, links to, to these grocery lists for the winter, summer and spring grocery lists where you can look and see what nature had in mind when it talked about harvesting different foods at different seasons. Those are clearly what I would call the medicines of nature. It's nature's prescription to keep us healthy and a big part of that prescription is the proper amount of fiber at the right amount, uh, in the right amount at the right time. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. John Beard. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.